Bible, please, and uh, to turn with me, if you could flip over to Acts 19, please. Uh, This is our study this morning, the 19th chapter of Acts. There are Bibles also in the pews, if you want to take one of those. In our Acts series thus far, we've witnessed Paul face almost every conceivable threat to his health. And yet, just when you think you've seen it all, he encounters a riot in Ephesus. And how blameless Paul remains, even in the face of this. So let's read Acts 19 uh, from verse 23. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, one of the gods, brought in no little business for the craftsmen. He called them together, along with the workmen in related trades, and said, Men, you know, we receive a good income from this business, and you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that man-made gods are no gods at all. There is danger, not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited, and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and rushed as one man into the theater. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. The Jews pushed Alexander to the front, and some of the crowd shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people, But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! The city clerk quieted the crowd and said, Men of Ephesus, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis, and of her image which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to be quiet and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples, nor blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open, and there are proconsuls. They can press charges. If there is anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of today's events. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion since there is no reason for it. After he had said this, he dismissed the assembly. 
And this is God's word this morning. Now, we've witnessed again in recent days, haven't we, uh, just how much money, how much credit, how much cash continues to rule the world. So many people in so many places have simply been going crazy about the plummeting markets globally and the financial pinch to our pockets more locally. It's been a reminder, if ever we needed one, just what a touch paper issue are those slender green notes in our pockets. And interestingly, it was also money. It was, in fact, a monetary concern, which was the incendiary cause of the Ephesian riot. Yes, it is true that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. But it is also true that the love of money is the root of an evil riot, as in this case. And so we notice, firstly, how this love of money kickstarts the terrible trouble in Ephesus. Our story begins with the craftsmen who were losing their livelihood. It begins with a group of people who were worrying about their wallets. Now, we're introduced to these people in verse 25 of the text. I hope you still have it in front of you. A verse where we learn that one day, a man named Demetrius gathered together many of the workmen in his silversmith trade. And at this union meeting, Demetrius has a grave concern to bring to their attention. Now, some people think that Demetrius was, in fact, the master of this guild, that he was the sort of chairman of all these silversmiths. And this would certainly match what we see of him here in terms of his persuasive influence. Indeed, it's very clever the way that Demetrius presents his agenda before even getting uh, to the actual issue. He, He begins rather innocuously by reminding them of something they already know. And he essentially uh, says to them, uh, you know, you have an income uh, that comes from the fashioning of idols. He reminds them that they are involved, it was either the manufacture of miniature temples, or perhaps miniature statues of Artemis themselves, which people would buy when they came and visited Ephesus, uh, much as if you went to, say, Paris, you might buy a little miniature of the Eiffel Tower. Well, this was their business. This is what they manufactured. And uh, Demetrius says to them, men, you know that it's from this business that we receive our wealth. Now tell them something that they didn't know. Of course, they already knew this. And Demetrius knew that they knew this. This was their bread and butter. But you see, Demetrius is laying the ground. Demetrius is preparing them for the fact that someone is about to stem their cash flow. And this man is the Apostle Paul. What is very uh, interesting here is that it seems that Paul was even known to these silversmiths. It wasn't as if he had to give them an introduction to Paul. No, they already knew about Paul. You see that's assumed in verse 26. They already know that Paul has convinced and led astray a great number of people. 
Very interesting that, isn't it? Here from the lips of a pagan is a wonderful testimony to Paul's successful evangelism. Two-year ministry in Ephesus was not without success. And he says, you know, this Paul, he's been making big waves. And one of these waves, says Demetrius, if we are not careful, is about to wash us and our entire trade out of the water. Because Paul is saying, can you believe this? He's even saying that God's made with human hands. The kind of things that we're making, he's saying, these are no gods at all. These are nonsense. These are nothing. And he's undermining idolatry. And by this point, it's almost as if Demetrius has got a big spoon in his hand and he's sort of stirring the pot. And he goes on to envisage the terrible future if Paul keeps preaching this message. First of all, he says, our trade will be discredited. Verse 27. No more miniatures for sale. It will lose its good name, our trade. Second, our temple will be defamed. Not just the little miniature versions of the temple, but the large temple. The great temple of Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Which lay at the heart of the tourism of Ephesus. This is why people came to the city, mainly to see and to worship at this temple. And yet this is not only an economic problem. I think Demetrius might realize at this point his argument sounds a little bit base. And so he adds in a little spiritual, religious angle too. And he says, it's not just that we're losing money. Moreover, our God, whom we worship, will be dethroned. Verse 27. The goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia, will be robbed of her divine majesty. It was quite a speech. It was quite a speech. The first of two great speeches in our story And we'll come to the second one in a few moments. This guy, Paul, will rob our pockets of money. He will rob our temple of glory. And he will rob our God of worship. And with this argument, this argument that is so obviously motivated by the love of money, it is only thinly veiled. With this argument, Demetrius is about to start a riot in Ephesus. Oh, how fiercely prized is the pound, is the cash in our pockets sometimes. Oh, how it can be that we can be more concerned with our wallet than with our worship. That certainly can be the case, can't it? It's very sad, isn't it, that some people are more interested in losing their spending power than in losing their salvation. And yet that is certainly the case, isn't it? In some cases. That was the tragedy of Demetrius. And we need to come to understand in biblical terms that while we certainly can have both God and money, there's nothing wrong with that. Nevertheless, we cannot serve both God and money. No, we cannot serve both God God and money. Only one can be our master. It's either the savings that we worship or it's the saviour that we worship. And some people choose the wrong master, don't they? Some people, and maybe you're one of them this morning, don't come to follow Jesus because of a deep-seated commitment to the rub of the green. 
and the lifestyle of a Christian, the whole shape of it, in terms of being a giver, not just a consumer, seems far too costly for them. I wonder if that's what's keeping you back. I wonder if Jesus would be cutting in in your prize career, cutting in in your prize investments. And of course, I'm not just addressing uh, non-Christians here. If you're not a believer in Jesus, of course, I'm also addressing Christians with this application as well. Because I think as Christians, we surely are being very challenged about our attitudes to money in this time in our world economy. It's in the good times that we maybe don't notice just how much attachment we have to money. But you know, when we begin to lose the spending power, that's when we begin to see by our reaction just the strength that we give to money. When the markets slump, it's interesting to note whether our whole life mood slumps simultaneously. And if that is the case, then maybe it is indicative of the fact that we began to put our trust in gold rather than in God. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying we should have no money concerns at all. There are genuinely hard times for many of us, maybe for most of us, eventually. But what I'm saying is that sometimes the lack of treasure in our pockets reveals what we really treasure in our hearts. And what this revealed for Demetrius was that he wasn't interested in the gospel at all. He was only interested in the level of his bank balance. What a challenge this is. So this craftsman, with his well-crafted speech, it stirs up these craftsmen, these fellow tradesmen, and they in turn then stir up the wider crowd in Ephesus. And this leads us to the next stage in our story. From the craftsmen who were losing their livelihood, we turn secondly to the crowd who lost their rag. How frightening, how quickly a relatively small group of angry men can stir up a ruckus throughout an entire city. And yet, this is what happened in Ephesus. As just a few men stirred up probably around 25,000 plus people. Verse 28, when the craftsmen heard this, that is Demetrius' speech, they were furious and began shouting. That's the first thing you do if you're wanting to start a riot. For those of you taking notes on that kind of thing, you start shouting your head off. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. What is this small guy, Paul? You know, who does he think he is? Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And you can imagine others who are hearing this noise and wondering, what on earth is this commotion? And yet soon more and more bystanders are beginning to join in the chant. And others are are thinking, well, I don't want to be left out of this, so, you know, what's the words? I think it's like the situation in football stadiums. I swear half the time, most of the people don't even know what it is they're chanting. They just sort of drone along with the rest of the drone. And so here they are, they're chanting and the, and the numbers are swelling of the, of the chanters and, and, and now they're on the move. And there's a wave of, of crowd movement. You know how it is with crowds. And shoulder to shoulder, they are now dauntingly moving across town. And suddenly someone spots two of Paul's companions. Look, there's that guy, Aristarchus. Look, there's Paul's companion, Gaius. Get a hold of them. 
must have been a frightening situation for these two men, mustn't it? And so sucked into a vortex, they're swept up and they're dragged into this cacophonous crowd. And the next thing they know, uh, they arrive at the great theatre in Ephesus. This theatre, as Robert has said, was a really remarkable place. uh, Thank Donald for this. He had some great photos. This is a really superb picture of it. Still wonderfully preserved today. It could seat around 25,000 people. And it was normally used for uh, well-organized civic assemblies several times a year. But here is an altogether disorganized event. The crowd are simply looking for a suitable rallying point for, you know, this riot that they're about to have. And this is the natural venue. And so in floods this crowd uh, with two of Paul's companions. Everyone is chanting. And look as he records this, points out two significant things about this crowd. First of all, that it was marked by confusion. It's the word used in verse 29. The city was filled with confusion. It's the word repeated again in verse 32. The assembly was in confusion. And then Luke expands a little on this. Some were shouting one thing. Some were shouting another. There wasn't any cohesive message here. And then in what we can only subscribe, I think, to Luke's humor... He has this dry comment that uh, most of the people did not know why they had come together. You know, most of the crowd didn't have the foggiest clue uh, what they were doing, why they were there, and what the riot was about. As Robert said earlier, sometimes following the crowd doesn't display great intelligence. So first there was confusion, but there was also notice, secondly, close-mindedness. And I guess this makes sense, you know. You cannot reason with rioters. I mean, you can try, but you're probably not going to be successful. Uh, The funny thing is that some of the Jews actually try to reason with the rioters. Uh, We find in verse 33 that the Jews in Ephesus, they decided to nominate a spokesman. He was an unwilling spokesman. Alexander was his name. And we learn that he was literally pushed to the front. You speak to them. And uh, it seems to be that the situation was that the Jews in Ephesus were concerned that their name would be maligned next to these Christians. You see, it might be obvious to us the difference between Jews and Christians, but it wasn't necessarily obvious to the Greeks. After all, this man Paul, at the heart of all the trouble, was a Jew by background. And he was proclaiming Jesus Christ, who was also a Jew, who was the Messiah who had come to them. And so the Jews were concerned to say... We want to disassociate ourselves with this Paul. And so up comes this guy, Alexander, to make this defense, to make this distinction to the rioting crowd, and they're having absolutely none of it. There are only three things in life you cannot negotiate with. One is a terrorist. The second is a mother-in-law. And the third is a rioting mob. And the very moment the crowd get wind of the fact that Alexander is a Jew... They shout him down. They're not stupid. They know that the Jews, like the Christians, also reject idols. And this is how this whole thing kick-started. So they shout down Alexander. And in fact, they're so incensed by this that they really up the ante and we're told 
that they all shouted in unison now for two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. 30 minutes in, someone goes back. Are they still shouting it? They're still shouting it. One hour in, still shouting it. An hour and a half, two hours. It's just remarkable, the persistence of this crowd. Now, you may well be wondering, well, what was the Apostle Paul doing during all of this? And there's an interesting side note. It's recorded in verse 30. That while all this chanting was continuing, Paul had actually wanted to go in and speak to the crowd. This is not like Alexander who had to be pushed forward. Paul was pushing himself forward. Uh, Such was the man. Maybe it was that he wanted to defend himself against these accusations. Or perhaps it was, as knowing Paul, that he simply said, 25,000 people, what a great crowd to preach the gospel to. What a courageous fellow Paul was. And yet maybe, on this occasion, a little foolhardy. Oh, how we sometimes need friends who will lovingly put the brakes on us when we're running headlong into trouble unnecessarily. The disciples, verse 30, would not let him. And we're also told that some non-Christian friends that Paul had made in his two years in Ephesus, the Asiarchs, verse 31, they also sent a message to Paul essentially saying, don't be so stupid. Stay out of the theater. You're going to make things worse. Maybe Paul even would have lost his life if he went into the theater. And that is perhaps what underlies this warning. I like what preacher John MacArthur comments about this. Listen to this. It is faith to be in danger and believe God will deliver you. But it is presumption to put yourself in danger and then expect God to deliver you. And I think this latter, maybe this presumption, is what Paul was doing. And so they restrained him. They kept him from possible death even as this baying crowd shouted itself hoarse. You know, it may be the case that some of us actually need some friends like Paul around us. Because we're kind of like Paul. Whenever there's a, a, a fight to be had, particularly whenever there's a spiritual battle, you know, a non-Christian throwing rocks, we're the first to suit up, kind of superhero Christian. And sometimes we need some other folks that come along and on occasion say to us, you're wasting your time. There are situations where we are quite frankly wasting our breath and perhaps even endangering our health in going toe-to-toe with a critic. There are situations certainly where people are open to be persuaded and reasoned, but there are also other situations where they are not. Sometimes we need to back off. Sometimes you need to let people spout off. Now, I once heard a Christian brother sharing a story uh, about his early days after he became a Christian. He had a few rough edges in those days. And he said that one day he was walking along the street and some of his old acquaintances spotted him. And so they started to shout stuff at him, slagging him off that he was a Christian, slagging him off that he was a Bible basher. And with these few rough edges, he couldn't contain himself any longer. He said, I I ended up taking a swing at some of them. Call me a Bible basher. I'll show you Bible bashing. But you know, it compromised his early witness with those guys. That's totally not the thing he should have done. 
He should have let them spout off. It wasn't the time for them to be going up and trying to reason with them about the gospel. Let them shout off. And once they've run out of puff, come alongside them. And in fact, they will see something in your blameless behavior about the Lord Jesus that you're trying to present in any case. And they'll wonder, what's wrong with this guy? That he doesn't swing back. And this is in many ways what happens in our story. Because after two hours of shouting, the crowd finally run out of puff. The, the crowd are finally ready to take a break. They must have been bored as well, I think, at this stage, shouting this uh, one chant all the time. And so we come to the final part and the conclusion of the story. Our stories progress from the craftsmen who were losing their livelihood to the crowd who lost its rag. And now it ends with the clerk who kept the peace. It's one of the most interesting things about this story that it is in fact a non-Christian who ends up stepping in and quelling the riot. What a sovereign God we have. This non-believer comes in and by appealing to the pagan law, he's able to defuse this riot. Now we don't know this man's name. We only know his job. That he was the city clerk. Uh, Perhaps that doesn't give you a, a significant enough idea actually of the important role that he had. One historian comments that the town clerk was the highest civic official in the city and that he operated much like a powerful city manager. So he was the top dog in Ephesus. He's a man of influence. He's a man of power. He's respected by the masses generally or as much as public officials are. And so at the end of this two hours of chanting, up steps the clerk and people see someone they identify with and they say, right, let's just, you know, let's call it quits for a moment and let's see if he's got anything interesting to say to us. And this man giving the speech of his political career says some extremely wise words, some extremely canny words. Let's notice how he dissuades them from carrying on the riot. First of all, he appeals to the indisputable heritage of Ephesus. He says, in effect, you are all overreacting because some backwater preacher like Paul is really not going to change the worldwide reputation of Ephesus. I mean, get real. He says in verse 35, who does not know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple? The answer he expects is no one. Everyone knows that the temple has been given to Ephesus as the great place of worship. This guardianship has been confirmed by what he calls a sacred stone which has fallen from the sky. This was a a meteor that everyone believed had been sent down from heaven. It had landed in Ephesus. And having been sent by Zeus, uh, the folks said, well, this confirms the fact that Ephesus is forever a place of worship. These facts cannot be changed. In fact, he says that they're undeniable. So that's the first reason, the indisputable heritage of Ephesus. Secondly, he adds the innocent behavior of the Christians, of Paul and the other believers. Now again, this is quite something, isn't it? Here a pagan defends the behavior of a Christian. Verse 37, you brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. You're claiming these Christians are idol smashers. You're claiming that these Christians have a big thing against idolatry. Yet he says, as far as I know, they haven't broken a single idol and they haven't blasphemed a single god or goddess. 
And this was true. The Christians hadn't broken any laws. In fact, it was a, an aspect of what Paul did when he went into these cities. He ran a positive campaign. He didn't go into the temple of Artemis and seek to desecrate the place. No, he positively preached the gospel. He positively proclaimed that there is only one God who is the creator of all things. And if people should believe that message and decide not to buy any more idols or go into temples, that's their business. And so he says to them, well, these Christians, they haven't broken the law. And if Demetrius and his cohorts think so, they should take them to the law courts. That's the place where this should be settled. In a legal assembly, not in some theater where you're shouting like an animal. Good point. And then comes the biggest irony of the story, and this is kind of saved for last. I think deliberately in Luke's account. The clerk adds a third reason why they should stop writing, and it is this. That while the Christians have not broken any law, there is in fact the real danger that they, the pagans, are breaking the law. It is, as it is, verse 40, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of today's events. Charged by the Roman authorities. Now, Ephesus was a sort of free city, which meant that it had certain privileges apart from the Romans. But at any time, the Romans could come back in and charge them with certain offenses and take full control of the city. And so he says there's a big danger here. If we riot, the Romans are going to come and they're going to ask what the reason was for this, for an explanation, and we're going to have nothing to give them. Because the Christians didn't break any law and we just went crazy anyway. And so the inevitable danger of rioting is spelled out. What an irony this is, that in the last analysis, it is the Christians in this story who are on the right side of the law. A couple of weeks ago, we had the Christian Institute at our midweek prayer meeting. They're a fairly small organization based down in Newcastle. And they're liaising all the time with the political affairs down in Westminster particularly. And informing the church about particular issues that we need to be aware of. And the very day that they were with us, it was fantastic that they came on this same day They had just won a landmark case against the internet giant Google. They'd wanted to advertise on the Google website, their site, uh, so that when a woman would type in the word abortion, uh, there would be, in fact, an advertisement for their website. You know, Google comes up with advertisements when you type in something. And they say, we want to put our website there and next to all the other websites. In fact, at the moment, it's all pro-abortion websites. We want our our Christian voice there. And Google said, sorry, you can't have it. Because you are propagating a religious position. They said, well, what about these folks? They're religiously propagating a position. No, you're a religious group. You can't have a slot on our site. And so what did they do? Well, the Christians, in fact, there at the Institute, said to Google, in fact, you are breaking the law. Because there is now in place, I think it came in last year or the year before, there is now in place certain anti-discrimination laws, which means that you cannot refuse customers a service on the basis of their religious persuasion. Now that's actually sometimes bad for us as Christians. 
If you're a Christian printer and someone comes in with something that you don't want to print. But in this case, they said, well, this it might be a bad law in some cases, but we're going to use the law. And we're on the right side of the law. And you cannot refuse us this advertisement. Well, Google settled out of court. This huge giant with this tiny little Christian institute in Newcastle. In fact, I checked it out this week. I typed in the word abortion, and the Christian institute was top of the list at the right-hand side. Seriously. And now these folks that typed that in have got the different positions. Now, I think the point in conclusion of this is not to say that we will always, as Christians, be on the right side of the law. That should certainly be our intention. That's the default position, isn't it? In the New Testament, we should seek to obey the laws of the land. There may, of course, however, be situations, and arising more, perhaps in the future, where because God's word disagrees with a certain law, we may need, at times, to disobey a particular law. Those are costly calls. But here is an instance of where the law actually serves Christians. And this is what happens in this situation, and this is what leads to the conclusion of the riot in Ephesus. You know, we live in a society, don't we, that it seems to be going increasingly crazy on all sorts of fronts. But this is a passage that reminds us to keep our heads in these situations, to live blameless lives within these situations. And even as it is possible to use the law to benefit us in these situations. Of course, as we finish, we should reflect on the fact that Paul and others, as they lived this way, were actually following a great example. Someone who had gone before them and had dealt with this sort of thing impressively. The Lord Jesus Christ. What to do when the crowd loses its cool? What to do when the rabble loses its rack? We remember how the Lord Jesus was dragged away by a bellowing crowd. We remember how they were not shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, but they were shouting, we have no king but Caesar. And they were shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And on that day there was no friend of Jesus ready to protect him from the crowd. They were all protecting themselves. And on that day, there was no secular official who got up to talk the crowd out of it. Pilate washed his hands and said, take him away and nail him to the cross. And all the time, not one sin entered his heart. Not one sin passed his lips. Jesus was blameless. And on that cross, he gave his life as the perfect sinless sacrifice for every sin that our society and each and every one of us as individuals have committed. And he set as an example also in that, of blameless behavior when the world goes mad and when the crowd goes crazy. Let us reflect on that as we come.